was the verdict on the uh, Smurfs movie? Oh, man. Uh, it was bad, but it wasn't ha-ha bad. It was just plain bad, which is kind of the worst. Yeah. I mean, bad movies are great if they're fun. That it wasn't, it did not bring the giggles. It did not spark joy. It did not. <laughs> then chuck it out the window. Uh, yeah, that's advisable. And and for reference to the audience, uh, we're talking about Smurfs too, not for this episode, just something that my wife and I decided to watch last night for some reason. I guess it was just on Netflix. It's kind of your guys' bonding hobby, I've noticed, is just watching insane animated well, features. Yeah, together. yeah. The uh, the mediocre to bad animated features can be either gems of hilarity or or they're just bad. Like in Smurf Stew is just bad. Another podcast idea and the rating system can be is it ha ha bad or just bad bad, bad. <laughs> <laughs> still funny just not ha ha funny. <laughs> uh, uh, but what are we doing yeah. here? Oh like, yeah, so this is a well. I guess we should introduce ourselves and everything like that. Hello, everybody. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award breakout. Yep. Uh, it's a movie award riot, really. That's gotta, true. They got to bring the tanks in. We are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this episode is number 015, The Big House. The Big House. Yes. And this has some familiar faces in it, doesn't it? Yes, I I swear Chester Morris uh was king of the early 30s movies and apparently just once he lost his crown just was I mean he it's not like he was never heard from again cuz he was uh he had like a popular serial where he played I guess I think the name was Blackie some kind of private eye and like I mentioned before he was in that mystery science theater movie but yeah he's the she this, creature right the she creature and he uh where he plays you know the sinister uh Dr. Lombardi uh which is great I think every actor would like to round out his career playing the evil Dr. Lombardi. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a shame that he's just not more well-remembered because it seems like he was kind of a big deal back then if he was in so many of these movies. Yeah, he's really he's really grown on me. Me too. I like him better with each movie. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, he did a good job in this one. Yeah, every I have to say I'm I'm pretty impressed mostly by the acting in this uh he's mm -hmm. yeah he's really good yeah it's uh it's kind of a refreshing change of pace i don't know if you guys have picked it up from just our voices or how we're talking about it already but this movie was good it was good it was really good i would venture to say it's the best one we've seen of the talkie era so far i would agree i yeah. would absolutely agree i mean i feel like the other ones that we've given uh Notsker nods too were good. Yeah, they were. Uh, okay. But it was also kind of like, well, this is what we have to choose from. Right. And I guess this one is the best. And, you know, a couple of them weren't bad for no. sure. Like Disraeli, which we did give the nod to. Right. Yes, I believe yeah, so. Disraeli was was good. But this was a different level of good. This was a different level of good. The It's like the most intense movie i think we've seen so far yeah i think so um and they they're very good at upping the tension um and they really took some 
social risks in their commentary, which I really admire, especially after Disraeli, where my one big complaint was how easy they went on uh, their focus, which was Disraeli. Uh, very, you know, there was no real criticism of him or imperialism. Whereas, you know, this whole movie, you know, you could not say romanticized really anything. And I admire that because the prison system is continues to be messed up in this country. Yeah. And uh, I feel like especially uh, in the early 30s with the Depression and, you know, the end of World War One, uh, there was just on the one hand, things were at such an all time low socially in society. Yet I think there was a pressure in media to like downplay that. Mm-hmm. And again, much like today. So I think it, it took some risks and I really admire it for that. Right. Right. I think the only thing that you might accuse it of romanticizing is conf- convicts. To right. a certain, <laughs> to yeah, a certain degree. That's true. But, but even then they're, they're still scary. They're still scary. I would not want to mess with them. Not even uh, Chester Morris's Morgan. Um, yeah. His character is probably the least realistic, but again, Chester Morris plays him really well, but you're still rooting for him. Yeah, absolutely. So should we jump right in? Yeah, let's jump right into the summary. Let me give a quick summary of what we do here. Oh, yeah. First thing we do is we're going to give you a quick summary of the plot of the movie. And then we're going to go on to rate this movie on different categories that we've kind of brainstormed up ourselves. That's going to be acting, writing, cinematography, and overall how well those three things work together. And uh, after that, we have some bonus rounds. Bonus rounds. We bonus rounds. All right. Okay. So uh, why don't you get us started, Laura? All right. So George Hill's stark, powerful prison drama begins with a shot not dissimilar to the beginning of another Chester Morris starring vehicle, last year's Alibi. Mm -hmm. At a low angle, we see tired legs and chains marching deadly to their destination. We then zoom out as a car drives toward a surreal matte painting backdrop of the large, sterile, big house of the title. So right off the bat, I, it, it's so strange because it is a movie that very realistically, I think, depicts how dour life was for these prisoners. But it right. does start out on this right. kind of surreal, surrealist note, which is interesting. Yeah, that's that matte painting background was wild. It was. And I mean, it's so obviously a matte painting that it's not one of those you know, kind of Star Trek things where like, oh, they're trying to be realistic. It's obviously, I think, it's almost like we're kind of driving you into a nightmare. Yeah, the building is very large and very stark, and it exudes the idea of prison rather than mm-hmm. convincing you that it's an actual prison somewhere. Good point. Very good insight. I agree. Stepping out of the car is a well-dressed young man named Kent, played by Robert Mon- Montgomery, who was also in The Divorcee in... I'd say a very different role as the kind of <laughs> wordy, woosterish, uh, bad best friend who uh, uh, has an affair with his friend's wife and then just gets out of town. Uh, it's not that dissimilar. No, I mean, it, he. I feel like he channeled a lot of the same nervous energy into it. Great at nervous energy, I have to say. He is there to serve a 10 year prison sentence for manslaughter if after killing a man while deriving drunk which is absolutely something i could see his character from the divorce doing. yeah exactly it 
might be part of the greater cinematic universe. I, you know, there we really need to keep up a list of all the things that connect these movies into this larger <laughs> cinematic universe. So we have Love Parade connected to Duck Soup. Duck Soup. Uh, this connected to the divorcee because Chester Morris also shows up. It's uh, it's the connections, man. <laughs> Young and completely ignorant of the horrors awaiting him, he gets off on the wrong foot right away by causing a fuss when his brutish cellmate Butch, played by a silent movie favorite heavy Wallace Beery, uh, when he steals his cigarettes. Butch knocks Kent out, but their second cellmate Morgan, played by Chester Morris, intervenes, convincing Butch to give back the cigarettes, which Morgan promptly steals from the still unconscious Kent, which was a good Nice little touch. Oh, yeah. It was great because, you know, you see Butch and Butch is scary. Butch is scary. Um, Wallace Beery uh, could probably be his own episode. He his career was kind of stalled at this point because nobody thought he'd translate well over to uh, sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I guess uh, the director's wife or somebody saw like originally Lon Chaney was going to play this part, actually. But this was sadly the year that he died because he'd gotten, I think, throat cancer. And um, and I guess uh, Wallace Beery was hanging out somewhere and the director's wife or somebody saw him like attacking this plate of spaghetti and was like, whoa. This is Butch. And this really um, kickstarted his career again. And he became a really popular uh, character actor. And he really does do a good job of conveying. Because it's in a weird way, it's hard not to like Butch, even though you recognize this is a dangerous guy. Yeah, he's dangerous, but at the same time, kind of dopey. Yeah, he's very dopey. You get the sense that. You know, he's very, it's kind of like the Frankenstein's monster. Sure, he's destructive, but it's kind of childlike. And yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a childishness to him that kind of endears him to you, despite him just very casually talking about murdering or hitting one of his girlfriends or yeah, wives. Yeah, because he sees a picture of um, Kent's sister and, you know, who becomes a character later on. And it's like, oh, she reminds me of Sadie. I shouldn't have killed Sadie. It's like, <laughs> good God. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm, yeah. And again, it's another, I, I think that this movie is going to rate pretty high on boldness for me to like have a character. I mean, there's always kind of been the lumbering oaf archetype, mm-hmm. but to have the lumbering oaf archetype be flat out a murderer and yeah. still somehow stay likable. It's a delicate balance that the movie does well. Yeah, yeah. And that's in contrast to um, to Morgan, I think, who is merely a robber. Yeah. And so he's clearly meant to be a little bit more sympathetic and everything like that. But he's still a robber. He's, and he's still a robber. And, and, he, he, and, he still, and he still cons those cigarettes, not out, not out of Kent, but also out of Butch. Out of Butch. So, yeah, he's definitely kind of more your, your sort. You could see like George Clooney or somebody playing this role, just kind of the rap, the likable rap scallion. Yeah. A little more cinematic, I think, than uh, like Butch, who I think is kind of just a unique little mm. terrifying creation. Absolutely. So we do learn that Morgan was put away for robbery and Butch for murder. Uh, Morgan and Butch have a have a very close bond and Morgan feels protective of the illiterate oafish Butch and Butch counts Morgan as his only true friend. Mm. Even when they have violent spats, they make up quickly, covering for each other when the warden questions them because they do get into it. Like Morgan, for all that he's protective of Butch, will still call him out 
Yeah. Because like, what happens is they, they race these cockroaches right. in the prison yard, which is it. And it's a really fascinating scene because like all the prisoners get in on it. And it's just a stark reminder that there is no entertainment for these people. There's mm-hmm. like nothing. They have to, they take very seriously um, the, these cockroaches. There is one convict who's obviously kind of been driven mad by his circumstances. And so he like looks at the cockroach and goes, oh, a beautiful butterfly. And uh, Butch is like, that's not a butterfly. That's a racehorse. <laughs> and so he and Morgan set it up. But what he does is he sticks gum on the bottom of uh, Morgan's bug so he can't move. And Morgan is like, you did what now? And so they Butch takes out his knife and threatens him and cuts his clothes. And you think, well, this is the end of their friendship. But then the warden comes, everyone stops, and they're both like, oh, uh, Morgan's like, I, I tore it myself. When they, when they were wrestling. When they were wrestling. Because they were just wrestling like friends. And it turns out... It, they kind of just were like, obviously mm-hmm. you have to get the feeling that this is a constant thing where they both get really close to like hurting each other, but then kind of come out of it. And they're just like, well, we got that out of our system. It's yeah. A bit yeah. of foreshadowing. Maybe don't want to give too much away yet. Yeah. It's a, it's a really well done way to set up the dynamic and yes. just kind of just describe how sad it is in this place. Right. But also using that as a vehicle to kind of explore how these two characters interact with each other. It's, it's a well done movie. It's a very well done movie. Like Um, this is a very prescriptive for aspiring screenwriters out there. This is a good way to like establish dynamics. Right. And this also the scene, this is kind of like their first time out in the yard. Right. And also part of this is a Kent trying to adapt and not doing a very good and job not doing a very good job. Uh, so as the weeks go by, sheltered Kent is having trouble adapting and he suffers hazing. Uh, this is in the form of a bunch of prisoners telling him, it's like, Hey, I heard you're getting out. You should go see the warden. I heard he wants to see you about getting out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Kent like very eagerly like runs up and asks the warden, like, Hey, you wanted to see me about getting out. And of course it's, it's a lie. Yeah. Of course it's just, it's just hazing. And, uh, I mean, I can't blame him for not taking that too well. That's just cruel. But, you know, he uh, he gets approached by an obvious stool pigeon who encourages him to squeal on his federal prisoners. Um, and he rebuffs Morgan's advice to uh, to kind of stay away from the stool pigeon guys. And he being Kent uh, turns increasingly inward and becomes increasingly alone. And he, yeah, he reminds me so much of like kids who are bullied, who just end up turning totally inward. And you just always see them kind of, you know, sitting alone and um, who probably end up becoming bullies themselves. Right. Or snitches or snitches. Yeah. <laughs> he's like the perfect potential snitch that he's a, he's a whole brew of potential snitchdom. Oh, we should also clarify that uh, since that uh, since Kent was put in there for drunk driving incident, he really gets the idea that he is he doesn't belong there. Right. Because it was an accident. Yeah, it was an accident. So he's better. He kind of feels like than everyone around him. And he also, as Morgan points out, has a supportive family um, that is like actively trying to, you know, get his sentence appealed. And it's pretty evident that nobody else in the prison really has that. Right. Uh, but there's a there's a pretty uh, poignant scene in the yard where uh, 
Butch receives a letter that, you know, he pretends to read uh, out to his fellow convicts as it's like a sexy letter from uh, one of his girlfriends. But then they all leave except for Morgan. And he's like, oh, I was just having fun because he can't read. Mm-hmm. And so Morgan reads it for him and says, you know, unfortunately, your mom has passed away. And, you know, Butch doesn't cry or sob or anything like, uh, you know, Jimmy Cagney in White Heat. It's really more realistic. He's like, well, I won't bust out of here and give her a funeral because... You know, her, his mom was so poor that the hospital had to take care of everything like she could right. get a funeral. And it's more just kind of like, you know, he didn't he just that was probably his last family. Right. But, you know, you what's he going to do about it? It's yeah, and it's a touching scene. It is. And they they did it without making Butch suddenly feels happy. No, because, I mean, you get the sense that Butch being very childlike he has very shallow emotions right you know he's really liable to turn on anyone his mother morgan anybody and you know feel bad about it probably right away but then get distracted by something else like he's yeah he says uh she's a she was a swell lady last time they came to get me she bit somebody so hard I that their fingers it. almost came off or something like that I and love so you it. kind of see like the the brutal background that he came from being mothered by a woman who <laughs> is willing to bite somebody's fingers so, to protect her child and yeah which again strangely sweet and it's also i think bold of this movie even if she's not on screen to describe a woman in that way, in that mm-hmm. very kind of aggressive role, but in like a fond kind of way, too. Yeah. So it was just it was this is just must have been so. Surprising for audiences who mm-hmm. were used to something more light and frothy, like imagine going from Love Parade to this. Yeah, right. It's it's crazy to think about. Right. Or even, (laughs) frankly, even the divorcee to this. Yeah. Like the divorcee, you know, all the melodrama was between these. Affluent people. Affluent people who, you know, dug their own graves that were very shallow and they got right out of it and everything ended happily. So. Right. Right. Okay. So the uh, the plot moves on when. The men are being served the same disgusting fish slop for lunch as the day previous. And Butch loses control and starts a food fight with this slop. And we only know that it's fish related slop because they say so, because it otherwise looks like mashed potatoes. And that's disgusting. That is disgusting. Like as a you know, this really drives home. You know, I give the divorcee a hard time for being like spoiled and pretentious. I would not last two minutes like little picky eater. Me was just like, I'm going to bro up barf just looking at this like horrible slop from the, this thirties movie. Yeah. And they didn't, again, it, you can tell that there's maybe a new realism or more modern realism to this movie. Yeah. Because I feel like in one of the silent movies or one of the more like melodramatic early talkies, you would have seen like flies or like a fish head or something yeah. like that. They just describe it and it just knowing that it's fish and it looks like mashed potatoes is enough. Is enough to chill you to the very soul. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they're not over the top with it. Mm-mm. They're not cartoonish. They don't need to be. Yeah. And they don't need to be. Yeah. And I can very much see that just being something that that you would have in prison. It's just mashed up fish. Oh, God. Ugh. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so. Butch having to eat this, you you can see that everybody is 
pretty um, disgruntled. Yeah, it takes just like one match in the form of Butch to like set off this whole thing. Yeah, so Butch Butch uh, starts this food fight and there is a lot of thrown cups and just, you know, out of sorts behavior until the guards uh, settle it down. Uh, and they get into Butch's face for starting it. And he ends up going to the dungeon, a.k.a. the hole. Um, and it, their quote unquote dungeon is like this. It's grim. Terrified. Uh, it's like a small oven like cell with even like an oven door looking sort of thing on it. Ugh. And uh, they, they, they always are like this. I mean, it's always been awful, but this one really like they show the visuals of it very movingly and impactfully. Uh, but before he gets put into the hole, uh, Butch who has been carrying around this knife with him. And that's actually what he used to cut uh, Morgan's clothes earlier. He passes this knife down from him, just hands it to Morgan who hands it to the person next to him to hand the person next to him. So he doesn't have this knife on him when they frisk him before throwing him into the dungeon. And as they pass this knife down, it's Kent who finds himself in possession of this shiv and he just holds on to it yeah for for whatever reason yeah it's interesting i can't and maybe i'll go out after this once we learn more about him but he's a really interesting duck like he's yes. he did not turn out how i thought he was going to turn out when we first meet the little fresh-faced boy mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah he he is not likable no, and because you really think what's going to happen is that Morgan is going to take him under his wing and uh, it's going to, you know, help toughen him up. and They're going to be buddies. But uh, no, uh, you know, Kent becomes increasingly withdrawn and increasingly bitter about his circumstances until he doesn't really make any friends except for with the stool pigeon. Yeah, which, of course, is is obviously a very fake quote unquote friendship. Yes. It, you can tell by the way the stool pigeon says like, I'm your friend. No, mm, no. Usually when people just who've just met you say I'm your friend, they're definitely not your friend. Unless it's like that gif from Step Brothers where uh <laughs> Will's where Will Farrell and John C. Riley immediately call themselves best friends. They meant it. But outside of like Will Farrell, John C. Riley comedies, that kind of thing is a warning sign. It's a red flag. <laughs> Be wary of anyone who wants to be your best friend or loved one too quickly. Yeah. Uh, no one's that charming that they get people doing that right away. All right. Uh, so that's the situation we find ourselves. Butch is in the hold. Kent has this knife and Morgan is also being called to the um, visitation room. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... Kent learns from his sister and who's also in the visitation room that his family can't get him off despite having these connections. They're clearly like this prominent, wealthy family. Yeah. And he that's when you see a change in him getting desperate. And he says, you know, I can't survive in here. It's going to be awful. And that's I have to say that's in spite of it not being like 
they don't show it being particularly bad for him. It's bad for everybody. Yeah. But he feels like uniquely put upon. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm sure, you know, we see him getting hazed. And I think, you know, if you do come from a privileged background where everyone has loved you and you've been sheltered, you are going to have a hard time adjusting. But, you know, he ignores Morgan's advice to just have maybe more, not exactly a sense of humor about it, but be more even killed. Don't squeal. Um, Because he's a person who, like, has, I think, these ideas of right and wrong. And right has always served him before. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody hassles him, he put, you know, he could tell the authorities and they will take care of them. Well, now he's on just the same footing as everyone else. And he just can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. He and he tells his sister that basically is like, oh, it's impossible to survive here. And you have to go again, go to the governor or whatever and get me a pardon. Um, meanwhile, cutting over to Morgan, who's there to talk with his lawyer. Uh, Morgan's delighted to learn that the next day he's out on parole, which uh, was not was unexpected. Unexpected. But again, I think it shows how. Like Morgan is kind of the gallant to Kent's goofus. Like if by kind of sticking to himself and staying, you know, loyal to his friends, but still being respectful to the wardens and the fact that his charge was, you know, robbery, not like murder. Mm -hmm. You, you, you know, you can get time off and it's not to like defend the system here. The system is still royally screwed up, Mm -hmm. but Morgan is obviously more savvy about how to, manipulate the system in his favor than kent is he is portrayed as someone who did it the right way and according to this movie the way to do it the right way was you know not not to squeal on your friends or do anything like that but just to just to stay out of trouble pretty much on on either side to stay out of trouble with the with the guards and also just kind of stay out of trouble with uh with his fellow inmates. And you can tell that even when he is, I'm not going to say on the side of the guards, but whenever he tries to like settle things down, which is what the guards want and like him for, you can tell it's because he doesn't want there to be a violent breakout or something that's just going to accomplish nothing. Yeah. Cause there's just no way to like, for like that food fight to have ended in any way good for the prisoners. Right. And so he he tries he's constantly trying to like settle Butch down a little bit. And he's he has varying degrees of success. You get the feeling that his alliance, his friendship with Butch is kind of a double edged sword. On the one hand, you know, there's probably no better protection when Butch likes you. Right. You know, he's probably one of the most dangerous men there. So to have him on your side is probably a good thing. But the thing is, it's so easy because he's got that hair trigger temper to get on his bad side. And it's probably really, really hard to try to rein him in. And then when you've got that close association with him, when he screws up, people are going to start looking at you. So it's Mm -hmm. it's tough. I mean, Morgan is really probably constantly on his toes here. So, yeah, he's thrilled to find out he's getting out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And as the audience, you've grown to like him. I think just enough yeah, to, to be happy about that too. And so Morgan is going to be getting out that next day. He's excited. He's packing up his things 
Uh, however, the guards come to investigate his cell, and this is linked to Butch, you know, getting put into the hole. Now they're like, well, we're, we keep hearing that he has a knife. Yeah. We're going to go search his cell for a knife. And Kent, who has the knife, in a panic, just kind of like tucks it in to uh, Morgan's pants that are just like on the uh, on the bunk. Yeah. And I don't. It's not so much that like Kent was trying to frame him. He was, I think, he was just trying to put the evidence somewhere that somewhere was, yeah. that wasn't him. That wasn't him. Uh, and so they find the knife on Morgan, and the, of course they don't believe Morgan when he says, you know, like someone planted that there. It wasn't me. Why would I be so stupid when I know I'm getting out to hide the knife? Which is right. a very good point. But the pres- the guard, the wardens just don't listen. Yeah, of course. And he loses his his parole and Morgan uh, very quickly deduces that it's Kent, who's the culprit and goes ballistic on him because obviously it's like this this new guy just showed up. He was nice to him. And now he's losing his parole because this guy is a little worm (laughs) is a little worm. Exactly. And so Morgan ends up. Uh, in the dungeon as well. Yeah, and it's it's very because Morgan has been so cool and collected throughout. It's especially impactful to see him finally lose it. And any of us would in that situation. We think we're getting out of this hellhole the next day, and this newcomer blows it for us. Yeah, it was it was not great, um, not at all. Anyway, so when their time is up in the dungeon, Butch is proud to walk out on his two feet. He is, however, heartbroken when he sees uh, Morgan is broken himself, lying lifelessly on the ground. He looks in really bad shape. Uh, This is all a ruse, however, as indicated by Morgan winking at Butch. Oh, I missed that part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Butch is looking over him while the guards are off doing something else and... uh, Morgan like looks up and winks at him a little bit and then goes back to pretending to be asleep. Uh, snoring. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> when Morgan is taken to an infirmary, he gets, well, first of all, he gets a nice bed, which I, I, <gasps> I would be like, even if the plan was just that was just to go to the infirmary. So you could just have like a nice open space with a nice bed. God, I would be one of those people who would just fakes getting sick constantly. <laughs> right. They hear that uh, another guy had died, so Morgan gets this idea and escapes by sneaking onto the morgue truck that is taking this dead person out. They don't really clarify what they did with the dead guy. (laughs) I don't know. I just, you get the sense, like, just in the quick scene in the infirmary that the doctor doesn't care. He's probably past the point. He's just probably careless. They probably just throw him in and don't even check, like... Mm. But anyway, so Morgan has his great escape. Um, And uh, how about you take it over again, Laura? He attempts to settle scores with Kent by uh, tracking down his sister, Anne, who owns a bookshop. Uh, She recognizes him from the waiting room, however. And uh, also there had been a letter from Kent uh, saying, oh, he thinks I framed him. He's probably after me. So she like surmises pretty quickly that he's there for some kind of vengeance. And, uh, you know, he uh, tries to butter up at first saying, oh, I'm looking for a book on the Pacific Islands just to kind of, you know, learn how to live there. And she's like, okay, 
I'll go to the back and try to find it. He's like, I'll help you. And kind of follows her into the back room. And uh, she actually, you know, gets him to look at the boxes. And uh, when he does, she reaches into his jacket that he put on the desk and pulls out his gun and like, you know, points it at him and tells him to freeze. Yeah, it's interesting because this is the way I interpreted it as at least was this was Morgan trying to be intimidating and almost butch like. Yes. And it and he just can't do it very well. He's a robber. He's not someone there who can really intimidate. He's he's not that kind of guy, which, you know, I was very glad to learn because, you know, we don't really know at this point. We know that he's kind of had a, like a faraway crush on Anne from the picture he's seen of her uh, that Kent has and that he's seen her in the uh, uh, in the waiting room and everything. So he's, I think, you don't, one thing, you just never quite know what his plan was because, then, because Anne is on top of it and points a gun at him. Yeah, I think I get the idea that he didn't know what his plan was either. I or, think or maybe he, the writers just didn't think it through. But He might have just gone there because he wanted to see her again. Like, maybe he's that besotted with her. Uh, Layla Hyams, who plays uh, Anna, is very pretty, so it's it's believable. Um, however, you know, Anne is also very kind-hearted, and she's unable to call the cops on Morgan. When, uh, you know, Morgan asks her why she doesn't go through with it, she says, I can't send you back there, you know, hearing her brother's stories and the little she's seen of the prison, she just can't do it. Uh, so he's very moved by her kindness. Um, however, he's been trailed there by a sergeant on the lookout for him. And looking, I, I couldn't remember the character's name to look him up on IMDb, but I think the actor does a really good job in the role of the sergeant. Mm-hmm. I was just immediately scared of him. He was one of those. He just came off like an a-hole cop. <laughs> like he really did he he you did not want to cross him no kind of he's the, a very big imposing guy and i'm sure i've seen him in some other 30s movie because he has he just has a very familiar look to me but he was very good mm-hmm. yeah he did a good job he doesn't arrest Margaret morgan right then and there or reveal that he knows his identity but nonetheless he keeps a close close watch over him in the coming weeks yeah so he later talks about uh you know shadowing him finding out where he works and all this stuff too and it's also kind of interesting that in describing how he's shadowing morgan it exposes how much morgan has changed it's not like they're shadowing him into like some shady dealings or anything like that it's like yeah and then we followed him to his job yeah and it's it's again more interesting commentary like does that maybe prick the sergeant's conscience at all like he is trying to start over no it's just he's another job yeah um but uh so morgan does find a job and he courts Anne, and the two fall in love however morgan knows the sergeant is on to him and goes to Anne's family's house to tell her he's leaving for the pacific islands and you know her family has come to love him. It looks like it's set up with, you know, it's a very, very nice house with uh, 
her father, her mother, and I don't know, an uncle or something. Something like that. Like, yeah. or, or else like the, she has three parents and a healthy polyamorous relationship. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> they, and I think it's just, it's a telling trait of Morgan's character. Cause he, you know, mentions to Kent early on that like, you're lucky you have a family. Morgan, and I think the way that, you know, Morgan sticks to Butch and everything, you get the sense he wants family. He wants, like some people of his own. He wants somebody he can trust and who trusts him. And I think that's one of the draws that he has to Anne is that that's kind of like the first person outside of Butch that he can really get that with. Yeah. Um, She trusts him despite him being who he is. And uh, he trusts her despite the precarious situation that he's in with her. And I think that really moved him, especially like that first time when she said she wouldn't turn him in. I think that's just kind of a big deal. He's He's been treated not so great his entire life by the people around him. Yeah. And they communicated all that with so little. So little. Yeah. Which is just, again, you could tell so much by not saying a heck of a lot. This movie really accomplishes that. Um, but unfortunately, at just the moment he is about to leave he's finally arrested by the sergeant at Anne's house and Anne finally reveals her feelings by giving him a big old kiss goodbye and it's very very sad um, back at the big house Butch lets Morgan in on an escape plan he and the other inmates are planning to uh, basically when uh, the prison gardener goes to take uh, some big batch of flowers to the guards they're just kind of freaking storm the gate in that moment it's open and run for it. Not the best plan, which Morgan points out. Um, yeah, Morgan's basically like, you realize they have guns. Yeah, and uh, they, and plus he also wants to stay on the straight narrow path for Anne, so he has some unexpected reservations that uh, show up as red flags to the other inmates. Uh, although Butch, you know, is holding out all that like, no, no, Morgan's my friend. I'll kill anybody who says Morgan's uh, turned snitch. But you can see the wheels turning in his head, too, in his slow, crazy little head. Yeah. And it's I mean, it was kind of sweet how Butch said, you know, he might he might be not in on it, but he's not going to squeal because that's just not the guy he is. And it's true. Yeah, no. That, that, that isn't the guy who Morgan is. Morgan's not going to take part of it and he's telling them it's a stupid idea, but he's not going to, like, get them in trouble for it. But you know who does? Our favorite little rat boy. <laughs> oh, it's revealed to the audience that the true squealer is Kent, who tells the warden, uh, played by Lewis Stone, all about the escape plans. Right, and... The the upshot of this is, and again, this really highlights why Morgan wouldn't want to do this, is that when the breakout occurs, the guards are all ready for them with machine gun nests right outside the doors. And this is like World War One style. They have machine guns with a guy feeding bullets into the machine gun. It's like a whole setup thing that they had right outside the door. There was no way this could have worked. I mean... Possibly if Kent hadn't squealed. But even then. Yeah, I don't think I think they had that set up because they knew the breakout was going to be attempted. Yeah, true. I mean, because they there's a great scene in the 
church chapel where they're passing gods to each other, the prisoners. Uh, mm-hmm. We could get in probably more when we talk about the cinematography because it's such a great shot. So, like, I mean, it's not like, you know, the prisoners are well prepared, but it's still such a cockamamie plan. Like, Yeah, it's basically we're going to run out real fast and shoot. Yep. Which, I mean, maybe is the best thing to do. Like, because, I mean... They had like gone all uh, the great escape and tried digging tunnels or whatever. They probably would have been caught. Whereas something as crazy as this might have just worked. I don't know. <laughs> Let's ask our listeners out there if you've escaped from prison. Um, how did you do it? I mean, I always hear that it's easier to catch murderers when it's premeditated, but a lot more difficult in uh, crimes of passion to find the killer. It's like if you overplan. If you might, you're probably going to get noticed. Maybe that's how a bargain got out. It was just kind of that he heard an opportunity and took that morgue took, truck out of there. Took that morgue truck out. And even he was caught. So be careful out there if you're planning a prison escape. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where were we? Um, so, yeah, they're waiting out there with machine gun nests. It's very World War One, which I think was a very deliberate Mm-hmm. parallel that they were drawing they're basically at a stalemate with the uh, prisoners firing from inside the prison the guards uh a lot of them trapped inside the prison with the uh with the rioters and a whole bunch of them on the outside with the guns uh it's pretty much a no man's land dead stalemate and uh so butch and the others barricade the prison and keep the guards and other prisoners inside hostage. They assume that Morgan was the one to give them up because obviously it's been, they've been squealed on. And right before the, uh, the breakout attempt, uh, the warden did call in Morgan and Morgan refused to give up any information, but everybody saw him go in. He mm-hmm. came out, they planned the breakout and all the guards were ready. So they assumed it was Morgan who gave the time for the breakout. Right. Right. But of course, it wasn't. It wasn't Morgan. It was Kent. It was Kent. God. That wormy, wormy guy. Um, you also get the sense that if he hadn't squealed, a lot of this would have just been resolved without a whole bunch of violence. I mean, probably somebody would have got gotten hurt, but it probably wouldn't have been a prison-wide thing. It probably would have just been the the. It's like, what, six guys attempting the breakout mall or something. Yeah, like, they could have just like let them run and then caught them later. Caught them later, like seriously. But instead, we had machine gun nests and it, it escalated quickly, let's say. Very. They they did not teach de-escalation techniques to this no. prison staff here. Um, right, so... Let's see. So they have the prisoners and the guards inside hostage... And uh, they assume that Morgan was the one to give him up. Butch has this plan to start killing prison guards or the screws, as he calls them, uh, if the warden does not let them through the gate. And they actually put out a little flag of truce to stop the shooting. And they send out one of the guards to say, hey, uh, he's going to start killing the guards if you don't let him out. And the warden says, like, oh, heck no. And orders them to keep I'll see firing. them in hell is what he says which is a boss line for the early 30s I have to say yeah yeah and the warden who we're supposed to be more or less on the side on he seems to be fairly even keeled up to this point and 
and fair uh, and a little bit insightful about the the uh, people that he's putting together and and who they are. Uh, he seems uh, not the best decision maker at no. this point. You know, the minute I saw him, I'm like, he's wearing a bow tie. He looks like he could play like a fancy butler. He does not seem like he's really well suited to a prison environment. And yet, you know, he's in charge of the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, when it comes down to this kind of thing, he's trying to stick to this old guard kind of, you know, honor of not giving in to these, Mm -hmm. uh, to these animals. And, uh, like it's as if he thinks that this will call Butch's bluff or something and that he won't actually do it. Right. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, when the warden refuses, Butch starts the killing by killing the hated uniformed warden Wallace, who's just been kind of this. Uh, he, he's not the warden, but he is a guard that has some sort of rank. And, and none of the prisoners like him. Yeah, he's awful. Um, and he's kind of his counterpoint is another guard named Pops, who's just like an elderly Irish man, right? Irish man uh, who's I mean, he's still a guard, but he's at least has like some compassion. He has some compassion and uh, really realizes that these are people mm-hmm. that it's not just black and white. They're all hopeless, evil souls. And I, you know, so there, there's a mutual respect between him and some of the convicts. Right. Uh, Morgan is able to save some of the officers and prisoners by locking their doors uh, with keys that he takes from an injured prisoner. And this just in the riot. And, you know, before the guy dies, he points out it's Morgan taking the keys. So that even adds more fuel to the fire that Morgan is the squealer and the betrayer. Yeah. And he, he's protecting the screws by basically like locking them in a big room. But I mean, it works because, you know. Butch tries shooting down the doors and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he does save them. <laughs> yeah, it's some quick thinking on on Morgan's part. Uh, so Morgan, who's been fingered and is hiding himself because he knows he's been fingered. Yeah, yeah he's, he knows he's been fingered. And he runs into a hysterical Kent who is unbeknownst to Morgan has been trying to hide from Morgan because he believes that Morgan knows that it was him who really squeals, even though everyone's blaming Morgan. And, you know, assumes Morgan still wants to kill him for screwing up his parole. Right. Uh, And as Morgan kind of runs into the hysterical Kent in in a cell, Morgan, excuse me, not Morgan, Kent confesses his betrayal and tries to make a break for it. But he is uh, shot in the back by one of the uh, riders as he's trying to open the door to get out. Yeah. And that's the end of Kent's story. Yeah. We thought he was going to be the young male ingenue, but turns out he was just kind of a pathetic. Nervous rat. Nervous rat who probably was a bit of a sheltered pet in his family. And, you know, that environment did very well for Anne turned her into a very compassionate person but her brother it it just turned him into kind of a kind of a worm yeah yeah it just when you were this kind of situation does reveal your true colors and I think it just revealed that for all that you know Morgan obviously didn't come from much of anything he has some kind of honor Uh, Kent had all these advantages going for him a loving rich family and yet when push comes to shove, 
he rats on everyone and tries mm-hmm. to just save his own skin. They foreshadow this at the beginning of the movie, actually, when the warden tells, um, I believe it's Pops, when they've just finished talking to Kent, or they might even said this to Kent, uh, prison doesn't give a man a yellow streak, but it will bring one out in him. Yes. So it kind of shows that Kent was always a coward. Right. And prison has just exposed him for a coward. And cowardly he is. He is shaking nervous the performance Robert Montague? Uh, Montgomery. Montgomery. Uh, The prison, the prison, the performance he gives is really good. It's perfect. Like at first when I didn't know where they were going with the character, I thought like, He's just being like, he's not really coming across. Like if he's supposed to be this good guy, he just seems kind of wormy. And then because <laughs> I thought they were going to go that he was like, he would learn, he would toughen up. It was almost kind of like a boot camp movie where he learns to become a good soldier. And instead, no. And I think it is also an example of, you know, in prison life, it it's not designed to bring out the best in people. And so it's no wonder that he goes down this path, really, unprepared as he has been his whole life and given his character. Right. And so after Kent gets shot in the back, uh, Bush and Morgan end up confronting each other in a way. Well, Butch confronts Morgan and Morgan doesn't want to confront Butch because he doesn't want to hurt him. But they do end up shooting each other. And unfortunately, Morgan's shot at Butch is fatal. Um, and the kindly prison guard right before Butch dies informs Butch that it was Kent who squealed, not Morgan. And so at least Butch dies knowing that his friend did not betray him. Which is very important for me. I was like really upset, like yelling at the screen, like, no, Butch, it was Kent. It wasn't Morgan. Morgan wouldn't do this. So another point for the movie and making me a big emotional ninny, like I often am during movies, but it has to be a pretty good movie. Yeah. And the riot gets stopped when the army tanks arrive. I get little parallels. Yeah. Um, adorable little World War I tanks show up. They're, they're basically like little Daleks from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The Daleks show up um, and they basically just use the tanks to break down these giant metal doors, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, the, the riot ends. And for his courage in saving the people that he could, uh, the recovering Morgan is granted a full pardon. And the movie ends with him thanking the warden and saying that he plans to go to the Pacific Islands to buy some government land. And this time with Anne by his side. The end. I mean, you could argue it's kind of a pat ending and it's pretty abrupt. But, you know, at that point, again... I'm I'm a sucker for a happy ending, especially when so much has been like loaded on these people throughout so much hardship. That's like, yes, okay, finally someone gets a somewhat even shake. Like Yeah, it's it's refreshing after the whole rest of the movie to like Yeah. Oh, okay. So someone gets somebody gets a happy ending despite having a limp now and having his arm shattered by a bullet wound. Yeah, he doesn't walk away unscathed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I think an important, important detail, because otherwise it could be a little too much neatly wrapped up yeah. with a ribbon on top. It was very symbolic as he exits the prison. He is not a whole man. He is 
walking with a limp. He's not leaving there unscarred. No, no. And um, yeah, this movie just has some fascinating trivia with it, too. Um, it was inspired by some real prison riots that been, had been happening around the country at this mm. time. And it kind of started the prison picture genre. Okay. Um, and George Hill, the director, who I think started out like a lot of these early directors who went on to make names for themselves. He actually uh, worked as assistant to D.W. Griffiths. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, Griffiths, of course, having his troubling background with Birth of a Nation. Uh, he did, I guess, to his credit, start a few good careers. But, you know, that's how much did that have to do with him and how much did it have to do with the fact these were talented individuals? Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, Hill. So I think this might have been Hill's maybe not his first picture, but his first big picture. And he told all his actors that anyone he caught acting would be fired. And so hmm. I think he, so he was kind of method before method. Like this is going to be realistic. I don't want any glamour or glitz to these performances. And I think he gets it. I think he yeah. really gets it's, you know, I, the three central roles in the prison are Morgan, Butch and Kent. And I think they mm -hmm. each represent kind of the different archetypes there. You know, Morgan is kind of the balance between the overly brutal kind of violent, but at the same time, childlike Butch and the, mm -hmm outwardly childlike and innocent uh, mannerisms of a Kent who inwardly is very deceitful and out for just himself. Yeah. He, he has a different kind of brutality to him in a way. And originally actually, uh, and they shot it this way, uh, Kent and uh, Anne weren't going to be brother and sister. They were going to be husband and wife. Oh, interesting. But uh, preview audiences apparently, you know, didn't have any problems with, you know, the whole corruption within the prison system, but didn't want Chester Morris's character to have an affair with a married woman. So they changed it to brother and sister. Then they'd reshot some scenes. And I'm like, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, it's convoluted enough without adding that shade to it. <laughs> um, I would say like the one character really kind of gets short shrift is Anne. Um yeah, there's not. I mean, she's got that very impressive scene where she's got Morris with the gun, but decides to show him compassion. But I Hyams, you know, she doesn't do a bad job, but she's not exactly charismatic in the way that a lot of other. Yeah, she didn't quite draw the person, the audience in like the other three. I, you know, I hate to say it. I can't say I have really seen in this talky era really memorable female performance yet. Uh, I think we, and that I think is because of limited uh, screenplay. There's not a lot for her to work with in the script here. That's true. That's um, also true. I mean, I think the meatiest female character we've had in the sound era so far is Norma Shearer's character in The Divorcee. But again, I don't think Shearer really had a lot of screen presence. I don't think Hyams has a lot of screen presence. I hate saying it, but I think that's the truth. I think, and I think a lot of that might have to do with the fact that the directors just weren't giving them enough. I think it took directors taking actresses more seriously with like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford right. later on that we start to see some really good, memorable 
performances from actresses. Well, well, don't worry. We have All Quiet on the Western Front coming up. Oh, I'm, I'm sure, sure there's plenty of meaty, meaty female, female roles there. there. Right. Jeez. But um, what other there was just seems like this movie had just a really kind of just fascinating background. I And I think it was taking a lot of what was going on on in the country at this time the depression you know world war one like 10 years before so so yeah so those are i yeah this is definitely a very impressive movie yeah i i liked it and i kind of had decently high hopes for it going in um i thought we were going to get kind of what i was expecting from alibi and yes we did and so much more so much more yeah this really leaves alibi behind in the dust and i think gives morris more of a chance to really show his stuff he really isn't given much to do in alibi which is honestly yeah yeah which is strange seeing as the whole plot hinges on his character he's just he's i mean he impresses me i remember some of his really stony facial expressions really were effective but beyond that we really weren't given much so yeah, I'm liking this Chester Morris renaissance we're getting here. Absolutely. So should we uh, get into some ratings? Let's get into some ratings. All right. Okay, let's get into it. Do it. Starting off with acting. How good was the acting in this movie? Pretty good. Um, I'll take, I guess, a couple points off for, like I said, Hyams just, you know, not given a lot to work with. Didn't have as much screen presence as some of the other actors. Um Lewis Stone, I was who plays, you know, the chief warden. I at first I thought I don't think he's believable, but apparently cuz you know, he does seem very British drawing room instead of like prison picture, but he was apparently hired because when uh George Hill did interviews at prisons, uh he really reminded him of one of the wardens he met. Oh really? So, uh I guess he's more realistic. So I'll give it a I'll give it an an 8, I think. An 8. Okay, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah, I just because just because the characters were just so. I don't know, they drew me in. They They, really drew me in in ways that uh, I was not expecting to be drawn in. Barry was, you know, you can really see why his career was revitalized. Obviously, Mm -hmm. he was never going to be a leading man uh, in the Hollywood system, but you could see why his career kind of took off. This probably won't be the last time we see Wallace Beery in the 30s. I hope not. Um, Yeah, because he does just a really good job. It would be easy to go over the top with a character like Butch, but he really, you know, makes him believable as just this kind of like, you could believe there are butches in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Morris really gets the chance to shine. Montgomery, I think, just the more I think back on it, the more I'm impressed with him as Kent. Because he really does kind of have this lost little boy look about him. But eventually the lost little boy can get withdrawn and very scary if left to his own devices. You also get the sense that he's been keeping up that act. But at a certain point, you realize you can't be that naive anymore. And you could probably expect that's how he's probably (laughs) acted his whole life and gotten away with you know, loving parents who are like, boys will be boys. And so he probably is still very in denial that, that this didn't work on the judge and mm-hmm. that he's here for, you know, murder from, you know, manslaughter, manslaughter please. It was an accident. So yeah, I, and I, I think that it was a very brave performance to let himself be as pathetic as he was. So yeah, I, 
you know what? I am going to give it a nine. I'll give it a nine. Change right. my eight to a nine. Oh, wow. Doing well so far. Yeah. The big house. Big house, big points. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what about the writing? I, again, think that it worked out pretty well. There are some pat moments. A yeah. A little bit contrivancy. You know, I think I'll give it another nine because so impressive. Very subtle uh, in the just setting up the dynamics uh, in the prison. Um and not really making anybody too black and white. Uh, you know, Morgan has a lot of anger, but even though he is kind of a, you know, Han Solo acts like he doesn't care, but does role. I think that in Morris's acting really gets it. You know, he's still human. He still, you know, makes mistakes. So no one is really made to be too good than they are or too right. bad to be unbelievable. Even Kent, you understand why he goes to these desperate lengths. Because, yeah. I mean, it's believable with someone with his background. So I will, yeah, take a point off just because a little too pat. They could have given Anne more of a believable character arcs to give uh, Layla Hyams more to do. But overall, yeah, nine. All right. We got a nine and I'm going to give it an eight for writing. I'm just taking off a couple of points for things that were very pat. Yeah, the ending was a little too abrupt. After everything that went down. And the escape by Morgan did have a little bit of a hole in that. What did he do with the body? What did he do with the body? What did he, how exactly did it work beyond him just jumping on the truck? But not enough to warrant taking off too many points for that. Okay, moving on to cinematography. I'm going to go ahead and give it another... Gosh, it was really good. I'm going to give it a 10, I think. You're going to give it a 10 full marks? Yeah, let's talk about that church scene. Like, I thought that was... Oh, yeah. That was really good. So the setup is that, you know, they're they're singing this uh, choral piece in the, in the, ch- in the prison uh, chapel. And while they're doing that, the men are, you know, bent over, like, praying... But you see, you go down and you see the guns they're using to prepare for the breakout being passed between them. That and the bullets. And the bullets, yeah. And it's, uh, I have to say, it was such a risky scene to film in the early 30s. People mm-hmm. singing in church and passing guns. Again, reminiscent of uh, the racket from the Silent right, Era. Right, it was. At the funeral, well, like dissolving the hats that are on their lefts to reveal that there are guns under them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the hymn that they're singing here is even about like opening the gates. Yep, it is. Open, oh open my gosh! Gate. Yeah, clever, very clever. Yeah, it was. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna head and give it a nine, docking one point for, I don't know. I mean, it didn't have like it wasn't a constant motif like like say sunrise was. This is all about the artistry of the cinematography, but. For because it was such bleak surroundings throughout the movie, mm-hmm. they really did a good job of capturing the bleakness of it. Yeah, they did a good job of also just like those scenes within the cell. The cell is very small, and the way that they shot it conveyed how small that was. Mm-hmm. Just, you felt very scrunched because they shot it from within the cell rather than looking in. You're looking out. And but you don't even get any relief in the prison yard because, yes, it's very spacious compared to but it's there's nothing there there's nothing there and it's full of people it's full of people and uh 
it, and the shot of like the of the cockroaches on the wall and the race and everything really symbolizes like, hey, look, some actual action. No wonder mm-hmm. this is getting everyone's attention. How pathetic and horrible. Yeah. Okay, so overall, how well do the acting, writing, and cinematography come together to make a final product? I am going to head and gonna give it a nine. I am gonna nine 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 nine. All right. And again, that's just because of all the things you've been discussing. Yeah, it all uh, comes together to really impactful movie. Nothing nothing really stands out as being particularly weak or Mm-mm. or yeah, it just all folds together extremely well. Yeah. Let's go on to the bonus rounds. The, Get the, up the, some the bonus, bonus points. Rounds. All right. Okay, they're sitting on 62 points so far. Let's see how many bonus points they can pick up. And with the 62, they're already beating out some of our... Uh, <laughs> they, they've already beat out Alibi. Oh, sorry, Alibi. It's deserved. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So costumes and set. Uh, Costumes, you know, there's not really much there. Yes, it's just just bleak, but that's accurate. That's accurate. Uh, You know, Layla Hyams is dressed up nice. She has cute dresses, but. And the suits. And these suits, you know, they're good suits. It's not a costume drama. Um, It's uh, the sets, though, I think are super impressive. Like even the backdrop painting was had it's such a surreal feel to it that it worked. So Mm -hmm. I'll give it two. Two? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was about to give it um, as well. The I mean. You're right. There wasn't that much opportunity for really fancy costumes, but the sets were really good. Yeah. I'm assuming that at least part of it was shot in an actual prison. I mean, it had to be, right? But uh, going back to cinematography, that whole sequences of them walking out of the prison and those winding staircases. Yeah. That, you know, multiple, multiple people, so many people were walking down and just kind of very orderly fashion. Uh, it was it was impressive. It was. Okay, now the round where I think it's going to do really well, boldness. Yeah, I'll give it a five. Five five bonus points for boldness. Absolutely. I mean, this, I think, was just a very realistic view of prisons at this time, which were terrible. And I think it really did probably help spark some debate about prison reform. And it was never a problem again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that and, you know... I can't help but think it probably really upset the Hayes uh, for and probably encouraged the Hayes Code to get in because that scene in the chapel, I think, really would have ruffled some feathers mm-hmm. uh, doing something like that in a house of the Lord. Yeah, but I guess they're not supposed to be good guys. Exactly they're not, doing it, but-, but it's still they're singing a hymn while they're passing each other <laughs> guns and bullets. That's just the limit. Maybe. But, but there wasn't any sex, so there wasn't. But uh, there was implied. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about was, that really struck me at the time. He's only in one scene, but uh, Morgan's lawyer, who looks more like the Music Man from Music Man <laughs> with his suspenders and pinstripe pants, um, he's basically a pimp. It sounds like because he's like, 
uh, Anne walks by, and this is before Morgan ever talks to her, but the lawyer sees her and is like, uh, ah, what kind of female you want me to get you once you're out of here? And, uh, you know, Morgan and was like, any kind of female. And God, I love the use of the word female in these times. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just, and it's, that sex is implied. And also when uh, Butch, uh, when Morgan comes back to prison, when he's caught and Morgan's like, uh, uh, see many of my initials and women's bedposts. It's pretty risque, pretty risque. Uh, yeah, okay. So yeah, okay. definitely a five on boldness. Okay. Degenerate, yeah. just filthy and degenerate, just the way we like it. <laughs> I'm going to give it a five on boldness as well. And one of the reasons I'm going to give it a five is that there is this break from melodrama. Yes. Yeah. And there's this really bleak realism that we don't really see all that much in this era. No, no. At least not yet. It's not glamorous. No, not at all. Nor is it over the top, nor is it. It's impossible to ignore as something based on reality. Yeah. Because it isn't over the top. It isn't. I mean, it does. And again, it does not need to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they knew that they were wise enough, like a less wise director would have amped the drama up, even if there was enough there. And then it would have just been more hollow and probably less people would have believed it. So (laughs) good on them. Good on Hill. Yeah, good job. All right. So legacy. You said that this was the first of the big prison movies. I'm going to give it another five because prison pictures became a very popular genre for the next like 10 or 20 years. Uh, You know, I was a member of a chain gang, I think is the most popular around this time uh, that followed not long after. And uh, again, I think really kind of also probably, you know, didn't hurt the gang picture, gangster picture uh, market either in kind of portraying not good men, but multi-layered characters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'll give it a fiver. I'm going to give it five for legacy as well. And again, that's because we're seeing this become more of a realistic um, medium with with this version of movies. And I think that also comes with uh, talkies. And isn't it so insane to think that this was the same year as the divorcee and Morris was in both of them. There's such different feels, such different characters. Yeah, Montgomery divorce, too. Like, yeah, that's true. They both were were in the divorcee, which is a very different feeling movie. Which I think also maybe had some sort of like slightly more realistic feel to some of the other movies, and that it was talking about a very real, yeah, uh, thing that happened to people that you wouldn't necessarily find in a nice flowery uh, movie no, no, back no. in the day. Yeah, absolutely not. But. This was a, a little bit next level of very grim reality of mm-hmm. the incarceration system. And I feel like it demonstrates how sound was now making that possible. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit difficult to convey the realness of a topic when you don't have sound. I think this was a good case for sound movies, because I just don't think there was a way you could have gotten this movie across in the same way during the silent era. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't because so much would have relied on like the big faces, the big reactions mm-hmm. that you don't get in this because it's far more subtle. These convicts aren't going to wring their hands mm-hmm. and, uh, and all of that there, it has to be kind of spoken. So I agree. 
Yeah. Excellent. So double fives. Yeah. It's doing well. Let's do it. You're doing great, Big House. You might just Longevity. Get How well does the movie stand up over time? Dude, I hate to say it. It's another five, isn't it? It's another five. I mean, <laughs> seriously, unlike other movies of this time where, you know, we were, we've been kind to because they're so much better than last year's crop, that still doesn't make them in particular something I think that would excite audiences today. Whereas I think this would, I think this would interest most audiences today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's engaging enough. The characters are not dated. Mm-mm. Um, they're interesting. I mean, the, the concepts themselves are still very much the same. The person who rats out others just to protect himself, the, the uh, guy who is this, huge terrifying presence but also is kind of childlike yeah um and then we have morgan who's just kind of the the honest rogue (laughs) and yeah i mean going back to legacy i think you know we probably wouldn't have like green mile or shawshank redemption if this movie hadn't started everything of course yeah so yeah big old five good old five there as well and lastly let's get to technical the sound impressed me. It really did. Um, you know, one criticism of the early sound films that we've seen is that they didn't really have the know-how yet how to have like a soundtrack mm-hmm. over like a music right. throughout the scenes. Um, and I feel like that did hurt movies like uh, Disraeli seemed just kind of stagey and uh, The Divorcee too. without like, I feel like some really good soundtrack would have helped those movies. Whereas here, I think it really accents, again, the realism. Like, honestly, you could see Kent in particular during the riot scene, like, getting PTSD right there because all you could hear were the machine guns, the gunfight, mm-hmm. and there was no music to, like, distract or anything. And I feel like they did a really good job, technically, with the sound, like, mm-hmm. getting it Um yeah, I had no issues hearing anyone. No, or yeah. The sound quality was consistent. Yeah, I mean, nothing like, obviously they hadn't incorporated soundtracks. It's, it was still primitive by its standards. So I'll give it a four, but still pretty great. Like the, the riot scene didn't need anything else. I mean, it was terrified enough just hearing the constant gunfire. Yeah, I'm going to give it, um, hmm. I'm wavering between three and four, and I would only go with the three simply because there wasn't like that much opportunity for any kind of like no, I big mean, technical effects and everything mm-hmm. like that. But what they did, they did really well. And I think it is pretty impressive how they fit in like the guns and everything and even the tanks. That Yeah, that's and even the tanks. Tank. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give it a three. I okay. think it's a well-deserved three. And that gives us a total of 107. Holy cow. Is that like our highest scoring one yet? No, it is still a few points below 7th Heaven. And 7th Heaven didn't even have a technical category to boost it up. It was just that beautiful. Um, but I think that I think it's number two. Good job, Big House. But more importantly, did it make parole? Did it make parole? And by which I mean, does it get a not skirt on? Gosh, guys, I don't know. I don't know. We gave it. We gave it to Disraeli. <laughs> <laughs> gave it to Disraeli, and I think I also gave it to uh, Divorcee. 
We'll have to go back. And we'll have to go check. back and double check. This isn't really our podcast, guys. There are uh, people pulling the strings. Uh, There's actually five of us, and a different clone does an episode each time. Each time they have the information. Uh, but yes, for me, this gets an Oscar nom. It makes parole. Yes, um, I absolutely want to nominate it for a Oscar, a movie award, podcast movie award. Yeah. So isn't that better than parole? Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm sorry that they had to get shot to get out and rescue everyone. Yeah. To get that Natsker nom. But the the honor is just I'm the sure prestige. It's the prestige. The parole. <laughs> so yeah. Uh any any closing thoughts? Mine are that it was real, real good. It was really, really good. Go out, find it. I believe it's on YouTube still. Yeah. Um you can go and rent it. Uh, and I guess that's it for the big house. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. We do have like a, a social media stuff. Right. We have um, Twitter at ComebackAStar. We have an email, which I think I've gotten wrong the last couple of episodes <laughs> because it's slightly different. Uh, uh, your clone got it wrong. Yeah, that's it. Darn him. Um, our proper email address, and I'm sorry if you've tried to contact us there and have failed, is comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com. Not comebackastarpod, which is similar to other podcasts that I listen to. Oh, see, you were, you were led astray by other bigger podcasts. You better, you better, you better squeal on them to get even. That's true. Let's, let's squeal on some podcasts. Pontifax recently ran our promo, right? Yeah, they did. And also, I've been looking around and with a podcast called History by Hollywood, which oh, covers right. um, historical movies and compares them to history, which would have been a really good uh, link up to do with uh, with Israeli. Yeah. There are plenty of historical movies coming up. Awaiting us. Yes, they yeah. are always Oscar favorites. So for yeah. good and for bad. <laughs> yeah. So check them out. Check out Pontifex. Check out Hollywood. History by Hollywood. Um, there are so many other ones. I've also been tweeting and talking a lot lately about as we in the U.S. lead up to an election. And also just in general, check out if you have any kind of like local news podcasts yeah. in your area. I've found a few and they are definitely a good way to kind of keep up with everything that's going on on the ground. And yeah. Maybe give you some sort of respite from the national politics, which are nauseating uh-huh. at the best of times. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. Um, projector off, curtain down. Uh, don't squeal on your friends. Don't squeal on your friends. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.